Two weeks ago, it was our annual Vision Sunday, and I hope that most of you, if you missed it, you have had a, the opportunity to watch it either on the website or to pick up a DVD from the door. And in that talk, we celebrated much of, not all of by any means, but what we're doing as a church. And there was so much information punctuated by so many photographs and some films that I imagine that you found your head just in a blur, spinning. There is no doubt that we as a church are doing some amazing things. We're doing a lot of amazing things, pouring our lives into serving those within the church and also beyond the church to great effect. In that talk, I talked about the two emphases, particularly for this coming year. The first one was embracing new people. Once the tram's sorted out, we anticipate more and more people coming. They're already coming, and uh, we want to make them feel at home and part of us here. And the second thing was about appreciating the ordinary and leaning in to the extraordinary. We recognize that much of what we do and we see as really quite ordinary is already actually quite extraordinary as God uses our efforts to great effect in his kingdom. And also that we long for the Lord to do more among us, which is absolutely beyond any explanation on a human level. We want to step further into the extraordinary beyond the natural, into a greater expectation of the supernatural. We believe God wants to stir up among us a greater expectancy for what the Bible calls signs and wonders, signs that point to God and make people wonder. And they're inexplainable. We've seen some amazing things in the life of the church over the years that we believe God is inviting us to expect, expect more. Now, how are those things going to happen? There's one very crucial key to that that we're going to unpack tonight. And I said it in the talk two weeks ago that everything we do is undergirded by prayer. That without God building the house, those of us building it are basically just laboring in vain. And it's not just about doing. It's every bit about asking the Lord to take it to a totally different level. So today I want to expand on that, on prayer. And I want to have a look with you at a book in the Old Testament which tells the true story of a group of people serving very hard, achieving some amazing things, and to delve a little deeper and see how prayer is what made that all possible. So we're going to begin with a short history lesson. You'll learn something probably through this, just for a couple of minutes, and then we'll get into the main body of it. So to fully understand the story and the setting of it, we need to go back through a bit of history. So here we are in 2000 AD. 2,000 years this way, we find Jesus Christ. If you go another 1,000 years, you get to David, King David, and Solomon. And so at that time, after Solomon's reign, the kingdom of Israel became divided. The 10 tribes in the north became known as the house of Israel. The two, Judah and Benjamin in the south, became known as Judah. And they are the orange and pink areas just below the middle of this picture, that little capsule with two colors, that is Israel and Judah. And a few hundred years after that, around 700 BC, a major power, Assyria, arose, shown here in purple. And they came and they conquered the northern kingdom of Israel. And they took many of the people seven or 800 miles northeast. In fact, what they'd done as they'd taken over other peoples was they then repopulated the northern kingdom of Israel with others, with foreigners. They intermarried with those remaining, and the Samaritans came into being, which is why the Jews, Judah and Benjamin, hated the Samaritans, because they weren't pure Jewish blood. Twenty years later, the Assyrian 
empire tried to take the southern kingdom of Judah, but the king prayed and God intervened and saved them. And the Jews believed they were safe, that they were God's people in God's city, Jerusalem, on Mount Zion, the capital of Judah, and they were invincible. And as a result, they became a bit flippant and lived with an increasing disregard for the Lord. They just assumed his protection. A little over a hundred years later, Nebuchadnezzar, king of the Babylonians, came and beat up the Assyrians. And he became the head of the superpower. And much of the land was now under Babylonian rule, which is shown in this picture here in red. Jeremiah and Ezekiel, contemporary prophets at that time, had for a long time been prophesying that Jerusalem was going to fall. And both these prophets warned the Jews to turn to the Lord or Jerusalem would be taken and they would be taken into exile by a foreign nation. And Jeremiah specifically said who that would be. He said it will be Nebuchadnezzar who will do that. And the exile will last for 70 years. King Nebuchadnezzar and the Babylonians weren't familiar with what had happened to the Assyrians when they attacked Jerusalem. That's an incredible story. I'd encourage you to read it. I'm not going to give time to it now. But they thought, well, we'll have a go. And sure enough, within a decade, 600 BC, Nebuchadnezzar, king of the Babylonians, took Jerusalem and deported all the prominent people to Babylon. And you'll know probably Bernie M's song, quoting Psalm 137, by the rivers of Babylon, there we sat down, there we wept when we remembered Zion, which was the mount on which Jerusalem was built. When they fought back to the prophetic warnings, they wept with such regret as they were sitting by the rivers Tigris and Euphrates, which are in modern-day Iraq. They settled there. They worked the land. They set up businesses. The only restriction they had was they weren't allowed to move. They couldn't go back home. But they longed for Judah. They longed to return. Some 50 or so years later, in 539, the Babylonians were not interested in letting the Jews go. And so the Lord chose to allow their return by raising up another king, another empire. And uh, it says in Isaiah 41 and 45, he raised up this king of Persia, Cyrus, to be the Lord's instrument to ultimately allow the return of the remnant. And he came along, he conquered Babylon, he beat up the others, and the Persian Empire became the superpower right across the Middle East, completely here in green, you see, just uh, the most powerful empire in probably the history of the world up to that point. Now, Cyrus was basically a good guy. Some of the exiled Jews returned to Jerusalem and some rebuilding of the temple took place over the next few decades. So if we move just a few decades on, 450 BC, after Cyrus, there was some competition for the throne, Darius, Xerxes, and then Artaxerxes I. And he was the boss of the man that we'll be looking at tonight, Nehemiah. So Nehemiah was a Jew and he had gained favor with King Artaxerxes. He became cupbearer to the king which wasn't just a question of tasting the king's wine to check whether it was poisoned before giving it to him. It was actually a very high position, like a head of state. And he was there at the citadel in Susa, 300 miles east of Babylon, so a 1,000 miles from Jerusalem. Now, the chronology isn't that clear, but it looks like in Ezra 4 that the leaders of the provinces around Jerusalem had objected to rebuilding which had begun within Jerusalem. And so they wrote to King Artaxerxes, Nehemiah's boss, and suggested that he stop this because if he allowed Jerusalem to become fortified again, it would be a threat to his kingship. And so he did. 
he wrote to the surrounding peoples there and he said, stop those inhabitants of Jerusalem from rebuilding their city. It looks like those around not only told them to stop, but overstepped their orders and further damaged the walls and set fire to parts of the city. So we're going to pick the story up in Nehemiah, chapter 1, verse 1. You'll find it if you open your Bible in the middle. It'll fall to Psalms roughly. Turn left. You'll go through Job. You'll end up with the Esther, sorry, the Ezra, Nehemiah, Esther, little sandwich there. And we begin in verse 1. The words of Nehemiah, son of Hakaliah. In the month of Kislev, in the 20th year, while I was in the citadel of Susa, Hanani, one of my brothers, came from Judah with some other men, and I questioned them about the Jewish remnant that had survived the exile, and also about Jerusalem. They said to me, those who survived the exile and are back in the province are in great trouble and disgrace. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down and its gates have been burned with fire. When I heard these things, I sat down and wept. For some days I mourned and fasted and prayed before the God of heaven. That's the beginning of the book. The book unfolds and tells us the story of what happened. God gave this man, Nehemiah, favor and he requested leave from the king. He went back to Jerusalem and with the help of some fellow Jews, they rebuilt the walls. So he's gone back to Jerusalem here in chapter 2, and verse 17, this is the little speech he gives, or portion of it, to inspire the people to get going. So in verse 17, then I said to them, you see the trouble we're in? Jerusalem lies in ruins, and its gates have been burned with fire. Come, let us rebuild the wall of Jerusalem, and we will no longer be in disgrace. I also told them about the gracious hand of my God on me, and what the king had said to me. They replied, let us start rebuilding. So they began this good work. Now, this good work was not a small job. It was hard work. It was extremely difficult to do, very, very demanding, because the city walls were not like the walls that are holding this building up. They were a defense against attacking enemies. They would have been a good 10 feet thick, maybe thicker, and as high as this warehouse. So at full height, the wall might have weighed. I worked it out one day probably about 40 or 50 tons per linear meter, and it went all the way around the city. Now, we don't know the extent of the damage. Uh, it may have just been broken down in places, but Nehemiah refers in chapter 4 to the whole wall reaching half its height. And so we can assume that in some places, at least, the wall was less than half its height when they began, and they restored it ultimately to full height. So even if we make the assumption that it was as little as 10% of the stone needing to be set back into place, it is possibly thousands of tons of stone. It's an astonishing accomplishment. And so Nehemiah sets about recruiting and motivating and envisioning people and delegating tasks. And in chapter 3, it tells us about a lot of the people from various backgrounds who took part. It doesn't mention any builders. It does specifically mention priests and goldsmiths. And perfume makers, when you think of perfume makers, you don't think of gnarly, grisly guys with rough skin and ready to lift tons of rocks, do you? Necessarily, I don't know. Rulers, again, they're pretty useless probably at manual labor. And rulers' daughters and temple servants. This is what he's got to work with. And as far as we know, Nehemiah himself had never been a builder. And it was a massive undertaking, just a colossal task. Probably a few hundred of them there, and they set about rebuilding the wall. Now in chapter 4, we see some problems. 
And one of the problems is those around start to say, what are you doing? This is before they begin to oppose them. In chapter 4, it says this, what are those feeble Jews doing? Will they restore their wall? Can they bring the stones back to life from those heaps of rubble, burned as they are? And so this task looked pretty impossible to those looking on and must have felt that way to those involved in the building work too. But the book is a historic record uh, of the fact that the people, with the help of God, restored the wall. If we turn over to chapter 6 and verse 15, the wall was completed on the 25th of Elul, that's a month, in 52 days. 52 days. When all our enemies heard about this, all the surrounding nations were afraid and lost their self-confidence because they realized that this work had been done with the help of our God. They achieved this thing because of God's intervention, not their own building skills, with the help of our God. So seven and a half weeks, they went solidly at it. They had broken sleep because they had the potential of being attacked by enemies all the way through. They had to carry weapons as well as uh, tools. And they shifted tens of thousands of rocks. They made door jams, beams, and so on. And as you read the account, it seems they probably didn't even take a day off through that seven and a half week period. They must have been absolutely shattered. But look at what they achieved. And if you draw a little tiny weeny parallel between them and us, as we saw two weeks ago, all that stuff on video, and we talked about what we as a church do, look at what we have achieved. But not in our own strength, as in this case as well. What's interesting to note is that most of the 13 chapters are written by Nehemiah in the first person. And in those chapters, he records at least 10 prayers. So it reads like a journal account. We see an insight into how Nehemiah was able to accomplish such an impossible task, prayer. From the time he hears the news, he spends time mourning, fasting, and praying. We just saw then. And he waits for the right time. He's doing some planning so that he knows the answers to questions he's going to have to face from the king. It was three to four months later of praying and thinking and planning. And uh, he's thinking, what do, I need, what do I need to have in order to make this a possibility? I need people. I need money. I need an escort to get the 1,000 miles across, and I need stuff, wood from the forest, and so on. And we get an insight into the kinds of prayer that Nehemiah prayed. So we're just going to begin, first of all, with his response immediately here in chapter 1, which is with a fairly structured prayer. Chapter 1 and verse 5. Then I said, Lord, the God of heaven... The great and awesome God who keeps his covenant of love with those who love him and, keeps his, and keep his commandments. Let your ear be attentive and your eyes open to hear the prayer your servants praying before you day and night for your servants, the people of Israel. I confess the sins we Israelites, including myself and my ancestral family, have committed against you. We have acted very wickedly towards you. We have not obeyed your commands, decrees and laws you gave to your servant Moses. Remember the instruction you gave your servant Moses saying, if you're unfaithful, I'll scatter you among the nations. But if you return to me and obey my commands, then even if your exiled people are at the farthest horizon, I will gather them from there and bring them to the place I have chosen as a dwelling for my name. They are your servants and your people, whom you redeem by your great strength and your mighty hand. Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of this your servant and to the prayer of your servants who delight in revering your name. Give your servant success today by granting him favor in the presence of this man. 
Nehemiah is reminding God of his promises. He's going back through the scriptures. Moses said, look, if you don't obey me, you're going to be taken into exile. If you do obey me, I'll bring you back home. And he says, give me success today in the presence of this man, the king. So it's a summary of his prayers, like a culmination. And he's going to raise with the king the question about whether he can go and rebuild it. Now, this was not uh, an easy thing in those days because... The, this is the most powerful man in the world. He's an absolute despot. He can click a finger, people can be killed. And you're not allowed to talk to such a king unless you're invited to. So even though he's the cupbearer, he's not even allowed to raise the subject of anything. So uh, some of you know the story of Esther. It's the next Bible book, but it's actually chronologically just before it. It's Artaxerxes' father, Xerxes. And uh, when she was going to go and ask the king about the salvation of her people, she said, well, if I perish, I perish. You're not allowed to interrupt the king. So this is quite a scary moment for Nehemiah, not least because he's got to question the king's decision, if you remember, to effectively say to the most powerful man in the world at the time, look, I know you made a decree about stopping the rebuilding of Jerusalem, but I think that decree was wrong, and would you please change it? And while you're about it, would you, like, please send me a 1,000 miles west with wood and help and cavalry and uh, paid leave, etc., etc.? So he thinks, how am I going to start this conversation? What he does is he looks sad. So in chapter 2, verse 2, the king asks me, why does your face look so sad when you're not ill? This can be nothing but sadness of heart. I was very much afraid. I was very much afraid. And the king says in verse 4, what is it you want? And here we see the next kind of prayer. It's called an arrow prayer. The king said to me, what do you want? Then I prayed to the God of heaven, and I answered the king. If it pleases the king, and if your servants found favor in his sight, let him send me to the city in Judah where my ancestors are buried, so that I can rebuild it. You see how long his prayer is there. Uh, he says, then I prayed to the God of heaven, and I answered the king. So probably we're talking about a two-second prayer. It's an arrow prayer, just saying, help, this is it, and then he launches into it. Now, before I tell you a personal story of an arrow prayer, that I, I just need to paint the picture for you of what life was like in 1980, the time when my little story is set, because most of you were not around then. If you saw this morning's news about the pitch invasion and fans throwing chairs at the Aston Villa-West Brom match yesterday, if you found that shocking, there's every chance that you were not around in the late 70s and early 80s. England was the worst country in the world for football hooliganism. And attending a football match could be pretty dangerous. You know, when I was a teenager, my mates used to go out on a Tuesday night to Watford, and I thought, forget it, I'm not going. That is dangerous. Uh, getting back home was often an assault course of dodging a running battle between opposing fans. My friends came back with black eyes. They'd been kicked and punched and bottles thrown at them and everything else. And to be seen with the wrong colored scarf by a group of opposing fans would often mean violence. And so as they headed for the train station, often shielded by lines of police, keeping rival fans apart, sometimes mounted police, they would hide any recognizable reference to their team's colors. They'd tuck it all inside their coats. Very different from today, when fans celebrating on a pitch, a pitch invasion of a few hundred people, a few chairs being thrown, that, that was major news this morning. Like, what? Only because it doesn't happen. But back then, that like happened at every match, pretty nearly, and uh, off, off the pitch as well as on. 
cultures change significantly. If you're a victim of violence today in the center of Nottingham, it's probably because you looked at someone funny and they'd already had too much to drink. It may be someone's trying to mug you. It may be there are some minority groups who might actually, people might be violent towards uh, picking on them. But generally, it's pretty safe. If you go into town, you're going to be pretty safe. Just don't look at anybody funny, especially if they've had too much to drink. However, let's go back to 1980, when I was 20 years old. And I had a motorbike, as I do now, and I found a picture of me and my bike. This is it. Uh, this is my first year as a student. And uh, if you look at those, those exhaust pipes, they're extremely short. They're 14-inch megaphone exhaust, straight-through exhaust. It was the loudest bike in Sheffield City Polytechnic Motorcycle Club. There was no uh, decibel restrictions today, a thing called a silence. It was like, who wants a silence? Ah, give me some straight-through megaphones. So, boom, it was incredibly loud. And when I rode it, I dressed appropriately, as you can see. I became a bit more arty the following year and wore some crazy things as later on in my student life. But basically, leather jacket, T-shirt, jeans, black motorcycle boots with white thick socks folded over the top of them. That was basically the uniform of a rocker. Again, most of you here have never heard of a rocker probably, and you don't know what that is, but uh, mods and rockers. If you just want to Google image Quadrophenia, the movie, you'll find mods and rockers fought, running battles in the streets and all that in the mid-60s. Now, there was a mod revival in 1979-1980, and Debbie and I were walking through Sheffield city center late at night, completely, there was no one around, and uh, we were wearing, <laughs> well, we were dressed, uh, to all intents and purposes, like rockers. There was no hiding our scarf. We were basically dressed that way, carrying crash helmets. And suddenly, round the corner, oh, earlier that month, a friend of mine had been in town. He wasn't even a biker. He happened to have a leather jacket. And a bunch of mods saw him, chased him, and beat him up. So basically, this is like a pretty tense situation. So we're walking through town there. Suddenly, about 100 well-dressed young men in parka coats came around the corner yelling, we are the mods, we are the mods, we are, we are, we are the mods, which I learned, I didn't know that tune until this morning when I spoke to a friend uh, who, uh, who's the same age as me, and I said, do you remember the Mods and Rockers, that revival? They said, yeah, I was a mod. <laughs> My son's now a mod, he's just bought a scooter with about 100 mirrors, you know, but... Uh, but anyway, this revival was happening at that time. So they're coming around. We are the mods. We are the mods. Very, very aggressive. And as Nehemiah said in the text here, I was very much afraid. Debbie and I were very much afraid. And we looked around. There was nowhere to run to, nowhere to escape. And so we just held on to our crash helmets and we just carried on walking towards them. And they asked, we are the mods. We are the mods. And all we had time to do was go, help, Lord. Please help us. That's about how long our prayer was. And as, we, as we, they came and we got to them, instead of a hail of blows, which we expected, the first, they parted, and then the next parted, and no one actually got around to thinking about hitting us, and so we just kind of walked straight through, and the crowd parted like the Red Sea, and then closed up after us, and they carried on, we are the mods, we are the mods, we are, we are, we are the mods, and we came out the other end, suddenly able to breathe, and thanking the Lord for an arrow prayer. In times of trouble, or crisis, as was the case for Nehemiah here. An arrow prayer is very helpful. But it's also important at less scary times to just briefly pause and just shoot up an arrow of prayer. My father used to say, son, whenever you're in trouble, just shoot up an arrow of prayer. And I'm thinking, 
He obviously thinks I'm more spiritual than I am because an hour of prayer, I've never prayed for an hour in my life. I never asked him about it because I was embarrassed. But he said, just when you're in trouble, just shoot up an hour of prayer. I learned later on he meant an arrow. It reminds us of our dependence on God. So as we go through situations in life, an arrow prayer is very good. So I prayed and I answered the king. And the amazing result of Nehemiah's prayer was this. In verse 6, it pleased the king to send me. And verse 8, because the gracious hand of my God was on me, the king granted my requests. And those requests included letters to the governors along the way, permission, because you can see in a very violent sort of uh, world that they lived in, you couldn't just walk through people's territory. And the permission to use the king's forest for wood and so on. And army officers and cavalry were sent with him and an incredible uh, you know, support network as he went to get there. And then we see Nehemiah, as an allusion anyway to it, another kind of prayer, and that is corporate prayer. It's not evident that he actually led them in a prayer meeting, but it's implied that they, as a people, prayed in chapter 4 and verse 8. They all plotted, this is the people around them, together to come and fight against Jerusalem and stir up trouble against it. But we prayed to our God and posted a guard day and night to meet this threat. So he knew the truth, Nehemiah did, of Psalm 127, verse 1. Unless the Lord builds the house, those that build it labor in vain. Unless the Lord watches over the city, the watchmen stand guard in vain. And Nehemiah and those he led were building the walls, and the watchmen were standing guard. But they knew without the Lord, they just couldn't do it against these odds. It says there, but we prayed to our God. And we posted a guard. We did what we could do, but we prayed to our God. And they achieved what they set out to do. They rebuilt the wall. And even their enemies realized that God had intervened on their behalf. So incredible was the completion of that task against such opposition. Let me give you a couple of examples of a number of people here praying and its immediate effect. Until a couple of years ago, we had a ministry in the life of the church here called The Cabin. And we used to feed hot meals to homeless folk, particularly on Friday nights, but it operated at other days as well. And I remember being there. We do different things now. There are a bunch of people sleeping in the arches now. We feed them each night and so on. So we, we don't always do the same thing. But on this occasion, I was there. The day before New Year's Eve, it had been snowing. It had thawed, frozen. There was a centimeter of ice. And so before we could even begin, we had to chip away with shovels to make a space so people could step up to the servery. And someone sleeping rough in Nottingham had frozen to death that very morning. And the guys I spoke to, they just shrugged and said, well, it, it happens. Now, we were giving out blankets to anybody who wanted one. And an official in the council, who I won't name, not their position nor their name, but they banned us from doing so. So a phone call came from the council and said, look, you're not allowed to give blankets out anymore for a good reason, which was that there were a lot of wet blankets lying around the city. Those responsible for picking them up were afraid there might be needles in them, and so it was an issue, and they said, you can't do it. So uh, we said, but, well, the person taking the call said, but we need to. These people are freezing to death. We've got to give them the blankets. And she said, if you do, I will send the police down there, and I'll shut you down. 
And then they tried further phone calls to get a meeting together to negotiate this and just say, look, what about a blanket exchange system? We've got to do something to solve your problem, but we have to give blankets to those who are sleeping rough. And uh, that meeting was refused and the, uh, the phone was not being answered. So they came and told me that. And so I'm like, well, let's go. I'll come with you. Let's take as many blankets as we can. Let's go down there, do it anyway. Let's get arrested. Let's get into the papers. This is outrageous. You cannot tell us we can't give blankets to homeless people who are sleeping rough in the winter there. Anyway, my colleagues persuaded me I was just being hot-headed and uh, it would be counterproductive. It would probably just mean the police would come and close it down. So we had nothing we could do. There was no course of action we could take except one. Ah, yes, there's a God in heaven. He's on our side. So we decided we would pray. And we prayed on the Monday morning in the staff meeting. We prayed that evening in the leaders meeting. We prayed at the men's prayer meeting, possibly other prayer meetings as well, that week. On the Friday night, the next time we were serving at the cabin, a BBC television news crew just happened to be scheduled to go and visit the Arches to do something, and they heard about this problem with the ban on blankets. So here comes a news crew with a television camera, reporter, the whole thing, and they filmed the cabin, and they filmed an interaction between a homeless guy and Tracy which I've transcribed. I'm not exaggerating anything. This is off the television. And this is what Tracy said. When he comes up and asks for a blanket. We're not allowed to give any blankets out, I'm afraid. How come? The council told us that we're not allowed to give any out. So we're meant to freeze. It's honoring what the council have said, and they don't want us to give blankets. That is then shown on the television, on BBC News. It's then picked up by the internet news. It's then picked up by radio station uh, news. And a radio station invited the official who had banned us to an, an interview. And in the course of their interview, asked straight out, why have you banned church groups from giving out blankets to homeless people sleeping rough? And her response, which I transcribed off the radio interview, was this. I did not ban church groups from giving out blankets. There is no ban in place. Now, you can judge the honesty of that answer, but uh, the result was on the radio, we discovered there was no ban. So whew, off we were again <laughs> with the blankets rejoicing and nearly knocking our lectern over with our excitement. One of our staff who works with students, Rhiannon, told a story just this week of a student who was struggling with his flatmates being borderline verbally abusive about his background, and he was feeling really down about it, and he shared the problem with his small group. They prayed for him, and the situation, uh, they prayed for him and the situation, and within 24 hours, they had totally changed their demeanor towards him. Later, they even came to the Trent Cow service with him. It just turned around in a day, the only explanation being that people had together prayed. Prayer changes things. It really does. Now, we're just going to see the final kind of prayer that Nehemiah used. This is conversational prayer. And we find in uh, chapter 6 and verse 9, they were all trying to frighten us, thinking their hands will get too weak for the work and it will not be completed. But I prayed, now strengthen my hands. Just a short prayer, four-word prayer. Eight times in the book of Nehemiah, he says to God, remember, remember these people, remember me who are trying to stop the work, give me strength and, and so on. He just chats to God with his little things, you know, this is at risk, now strengthen my hands. 
So he's just talking very naturally to God. No, no long prayer, that great long one I read in chapter 1. And children have a great deal to teach us, as does Nehemiah, about these kinds of prayers. Listen to this five-year-old's prayer. Today's sunshine was pretty. Thanks, God. Bye. <laughs> That's it. That's beautiful. Or how about this one? Dear God, please put another holiday between Christmas and Easter. There's nothing good in there now. Ginny. That's it. Prayer doesn't have to be complicated. And children have a lovely relationship with God in a way that some of us adults would learn uh, from, would do well to learn from. So the result of Nehemiah's prayer life, into which we've had a glimpse, is he had a relationship with God. There was a two-way communication you also find in the book. So in chapter 2, verse 12, he says this, I had not told anyone what God had put in my heart to do for Jerusalem. In chapter 7, verse 5, he says, God put it into my heart to assemble the nobles. How many of us want to hear the Lord, want to know what he wants us to do in a given situation? How many of us want God to simply put it into our heart to do something? I do. The key ingredient in hearing God clearly and having a heart into which God can simply put things is that we talk to God. The more we communicate with him, the more he is likely to communicate with us. That's how any relationship works, doesn't it? The more time we spend with someone, talking to them, listening to them, the better we get to know them and what they would do if they were facing the situation that we're facing. So Nehemiah, like many of us, was a very busy guy. He and his people served and they worked and they just showed amazing dedication, as many people in the church here do as well. But he was also a man of prayer. In those four ways, sometimes tenaciously praying again and again for a period of months over an issue with fasting, with weeping. Sometimes it was just a quick arrow of prayer, just a quick thought. It seems that he led his people or in any way his, uh, the people joined in corporate prayer. And then he chats to the Lord through the book as naturally as one would a friend. There is in all of us this tension between prayer and action. Some of us are wired with a tendency towards prayer. Most people probably, like myself, are wired with a, uh, a tendency to get on and do stuff, be a person of action. And, you know, Nehemiah himself, he would quite possibly, if he hadn't even been a believer, he would have been a pretty excellent leader without having a particularly rich prayer life. He was a great motivator of people. He was a great thinker. He was very good at strategic planning. But with a rich prayer life, he was one of the most effective leaders in history. With the gifts and talents that we as individuals have, most of us can get on pretty okay in life. With the gifts and talents that we as a church have, we could get on pretty okay. But if we follow Nehemiah's example and we invest in prayer, it will multiply our effectiveness in God's kingdom and it will give us the resources to live life the way he designed it to be lived. If you're wired as a doer, you may feel that taking time out when you could be doing to pray feels like you're not achieving much. It's harder to measure what you're accomplishing. It's hard when you've got a to-do list that is longer than the day in which you have to do it to take half an hour out and actually read your Bible and actually engage with God. You're thinking, well, I need to get on. 
I need to get on. It's hard in a busy schedule to find the time to join with others to corporately pray. There's stuff to be getting on with. But it's important to realize that prayer is vital to a responsive and effective life. It makes the rest of the day go so much better as well. You'll get more done if you carve out time to pray than if you just get on. Now this week, as I conclude, we're inviting all of you to join us in prayer, to pray that the, the ordinary would become extraordinary with God breathing on it. And to pray also for the extraordinary, that God would move in ways beyond human explanation in this coming year. And we're also inviting you to join us in fasting. Many of the staff are fasting at whatever level. It may be you would miss just one meal this week or go without food for 24 hours or, or don't have desserts. Or if it's not food you're going to fast from, go without some television or your console games or whatever. Give up something. Deny yourself your appetites so that you can pray. And some of the team have been working this week on daily prayer updates. They'll be emailed out to anyone who wants them early each morning. And uh, a text which has a link to those points will be sent to everybody who wants that uh, to happen. And uh, to get them, you'll need to sign up for them using this link on the screen. Now, this morning, to make this really easy, I'm assuming that's a link, yes. To make it really easy, if you have a mobile phone on our address list, you should have already received a text. In that text will be the link. You just need to go through and sign up, uh, and then you'll get these daily updates. If, uh, if you thought, oh, I haven't had one, well, just check your details are correct on the address list, because assuming technology works, uh, it should have arrived on your phone this morning. We'll also be continuing the conversation on Twitter, hashtag TVPrayer, also on Facebook, so there'll be some interaction through the week. And then we'll end this week, as many of us as possible coming together on Friday evening, we've got this live at the warehouse worship event. We'll come back. That will be the culmination of this time of pressing into God's presence and asking for his will to be done. So we'd encourage as many of you as possible to be here on Friday. Thanks for listening.